Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 242, and I'm your host, Ryan Tansom. Today's show is all about growth rate, the rate you should target, how to identify that rate, what you can do to manage your growth rate, and how much you can expect that growth to cost you. That's right, growth can be expensive, and we're going to be talking a lot about it. Listen in as Kevin Trout, the former founder and owner of Grandview Medical Resources, Inc., which is a fast-growing and award-winning specialty medical equipment distributor to hospitals and healthcare providers, explains how he landed on his optimal growth rate of 23% after talking to someone who cautioned him that he was growing just a little too fast. Kevin gives specific examples of the tactical marketing they implemented to scale the company and compete with the industry giants. Kevin started out with a maxed out credit card and sold the business years later when they were doing millions of dollars of revenue, multiple product lines, and had over 60 employees. The thought that went into Kevin's analysis of what his ideal target growth rate is is one heck of a story, and I can't wait for you to listen in. So without further ado, here is my interview with Kevin Trout. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? I'm great. I'm uh, looking forward to diving into this conversation. Um, you know, I don't even know if you, uh, if you remember. So like what ended up happening is I was on the Vistage email list, saw this email newsletter of a handful of people that have sold their businesses. I was like, oh, I got to reach out. And, <laughs> you know, I think we've got some uh, connections that we know and you've been uh been in the Vistage circle for a few, quite a few years, I believe, as also a member, but now as a chair. But before jumping into your story, why don't you just kind of give us um, a little bit of a background and you, uh, the businesses that or the business that you'd sold, what you're doing now, and then we can kind of go back and how you got into it and some of the the trials and tribulations along the way. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Um, I appreciate you inviting me to be on this podcast. Um, real quick story. I, I, I graduated from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And I fell into medical equipment sales right out of college. And um, interesting story, I was, real quick, I uh, was bumming around. I got a phone call from a fraternity brother one day. He said, hey, you're doing anything today? I said, no. He says, you want to make 50 bucks? I said, sure, as long as it's legal. <laughs> and uh, he goes, yeah, so drive your car over to Youngstown, Ohio, which is about an hour and a half west of Pittsburgh. Go to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which is a very large hospital meet my boss in a loading dock, give him the keys to your car. It's going to give you a truck with some medical equipment in the back, bring it back here. We're going to take it to the hospital. So I go over to uh, Youngstown. I meet his boss in loading dock and he says, are you a friend of Dave's? I said, yeah, we're fraternity brothers. He goes, well, we need a second employee in Pittsburgh. If you want the job, it's yours. That was my entire interview. <laughs> and I got that Dave. job and I, st- I worked for them for 11 years. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, got promoted four times. It was a great ride. It was a great learning experience. I really enjoyed it. And so um, that's how I got into medical equipment sales. I spent my whole career in it. What were you selling originally? Um, we were selling uh, specialty beds for spinal cord injury patients and air beds for wound care okay. and burn patients. And then we expanded from there. We got acquired during that 11 years and we became part of a corporate entity and I got promoted. Um, I was traveling the whole East Coast at the end. It was a great ride. I really learned a lot and I really I gravitated to it. I really enjoyed it. Then I got recruited to a second company out of St. Louis. They wanted me to open an office in Pittsburgh, which I did. Built that up and uh, they said, you know, hey, great job. Wants you to move to St. Louis. Eh, no, don't want to go to St. Louis. <laughs> and and that was really the problem was uh, I worked for three different companies. And every time the next promotion the level I was getting to, they wanted me to relocate. I didn't want to leave Pittsburgh. I'm from here. My wife is from here. We're family here. That first company wanted me to move to Buena Park, California. I, I didn't want to go there. And the second company based in St. Louis, they, I did a great job as a regional manager of starting up an office from, from scratch and they said, hey, we want to make you the vice president of sales for the whole country. Great. Oh, by the way, you have to move to St. Louis. No thanks. No, no thanks. <laughs> so then I took a job with a third company uh, based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I had the whole eastern half of North America as my responsibility. So that's through Canada, down through Chicago, New Orleans, Puerto Rico. Um, that was my favorite job. And... Um, so they'd never grown more than 10% a year. When I, when I took over the east, eastern half of North America, I grew the business 31% in the first year and 36% in the second year. And they were really happy. They said, hey, we want you to be the vice president of sales. They said, great. They actually gave me that job. It was like six months later, they said, you do know that you're going to have to relocate to oh Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I go, maybe you should have told me that when you offered me this role. And I didn't want to do that. So it came down to, I'm now halfway through my career, right? This was the first 15 years. And I said, look, either I talked to my wife. I said, either I take one of these promotions and we relocate to another city where we have no family, we don't know anybody, or I stay here and I start my own company. So by default, I started my own company, Granby Medical Resources in 1996. It was up and running, incorporated two days after I left the previous company. <laughs> so fast track. And, uh, and that's how I, that's how I started my business. Was it non-competes or like, like, was there like, give us like your thought process. I'm sure there's a little bit of anxiety there, but like, what was the plan? Was it, were there, was there certain like, um, med devices or things that you liked that you were going to go into any non-compete issues? Where were you going to get the products? I got so many. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really great question. I, um, my job was to work with our distributors because I'm, as a manufacturer, we sold through distributors and I was in charge of all the distributors on the in the eastern half of North America. And there was one in New England, Future Med. I was working with, with the owner of that company and his sales reps. And, and I don't know how he picked up on it. He said, you do realize I make a lot more money than you do. And, <laughs> and I said, yeah. He goes, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking you should be a business owner just like me. And I said, yeah, actually I've been thinking about that, right? And um, because by now I'd already been told I had to relocate to Tulsa and I didn't want to do it. And he says, you know what, if you decide to become a distributor like me, I can get you some product lines. And I go, ah. oh, wow. And I said, okay, let's do this. So he called four of his top products uh, manufacturers and, and connected me with them. Super. And my question to those manufacturers was, who do you have selling in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? 
And every one of them said, well, I've got somebody in Philadelphia who's supposed to come over and cover Pittsburgh, or I've got somebody in Cleveland who's supposed to come over and cover Pittsburgh. And my answer was, there is so much business in Philadelphia and so much business in Cleveland that coming well, over yeah, to right. Pittsburgh is not really something they're going to spend much time on. Yeah. And uh, certainly Philadelphia guys have to cross the mountains in the wintertime to get over to Pittsburgh because we're on opposite ends of the state. And uh, I said, so why don't you carve out Western Pennsylvania for me? And they go, Hey, that's a really good idea. And, and so that's I so I finagled my way into being a distributor for those four manufacturers. And then I threw in, who do you have covering West Virginia? And they said, Well, we don't have anybody there. I go, give me that too. <laughs> so so yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's how I that's how I built my my territory was Western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. And um, and I started with those four product lines. But some of the people that I'd worked with in those previous three companies had heard that I started my own business in Pittsburgh and they started calling me and said, what product lines do you have? And I told them, well, we've got a really good product line. Maybe you should consider. So within six months, I had 13 product lines. Oh my gosh. And I was saying yes to just about everybody. And, um, and so within the first, in the first year and a half, we were selling a little bit of everything, not enough of anything. And I made a strategic decision, which I didn't realize how important it was at the time, but it made a big difference. So I said, look, I had a couple of salespeople that were minority stockholders in my company, Amy and Bill, and uh, love, love those people. They're, they're awesome people. Um, and what I said was, look, we've got to narrow our focus. We've got to be much more strategic in our focus. And we need to learn. We need to figure out which of the product lines are really gravitating to the top cream of the crop, you know, cream rises to the top, so to speak. And I said, out of the 13 product lines we're carrying, we got a mishmash. However, I see six product lines that fit within a, a niche umbrella, which we, which was patient safety, right? Uh, how to provide a safe uh, experience, a safe environment for patients so that they don't get hurt in the hospital. And so we, I said, we're going to stick with these six products and focus on patient safety and staff safety, and we're going to jettison all the rest of them. Hey, I got a little pushback at first, what, right? What, what timeline in the business was this? Was this was this was, um, just a little under two years? We had to figure out in a year and a half. I had to figure out what was really working and what wasn't. And and, and Kevin, one of that because as that process that you went through, you know, I'm curious. Like, and we don't have to get too far into it. Just maybe just a couple of pointers on it is. So you know, when you start in the business and you're growing, you're kind of just rev any kind of revenue to feel the 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 funnel, right? And feel the machine as you're eating up yes. cash. So I'm curious, like as with, with these manufacturers, did you have quotas where the, did you live off the float for a while? Did you have like credit lines with them as you were building them up? Because what happens is as you take on that, you, you're laughing. <laughs> I can, I was a distributor too, man. I know how, I know how it goes. <laughs> Try not to be the bank for everybody else, right? And I think that yeah. the, like the reason I bring up the question too is those decisions bring lots of anxiety with the choice that you made to narrow down because you're fueling the machine and you're going, I have oh, yeah. to cut off my hands to keep going forward. And it's just terrifying sometimes. <laughs> well, I can tell you that, um, I'll tell you how I did that. <laughs> but within six months after I made that decision to stay focused on just six core products, our revenues doubled in six months. So it was the right, right decision. That. Yeah. Reassuring that you made the right, co right call, yeah. right? Now, how to fund all that? Well, I had to strike some uh, some deals revenue share deals with the manufacturer. I didn't take a paycheck in the whole first year I was in business. So I lived off of $60,000 worth of uh, cash advances off of six Visa cards to pay my mortgage and my living expenses. 
I paid myself, I got one paycheck at the end of the first year for $1,000. In year two, I paid myself $12,000, $1,000 a month. But we reached a break-even point at the end of year two because by then we had doubled our revenues six months after I made that strategic decision to stay focused on core product lines that really fit under an umbrella, niche umbrella. And we just took off from there. So funding it was, A, I just... I risked it all with the, with the credit cards, right? I think it took six years to pay off those credit cards, but the, mm-hmm. but the company paid it all off. The other part was getting a line of credit with the bank, right? And, we, and because we started growing so quickly because we were niche focused, my average annual growth rate was 23% a year. Wow. And you know, I, was getting a, I had a million dollar line of credit to acquire more inventory and things like that. And my, and I was trying to get the line of credit up because I had, I was using it. Right. <laughs> More and, credit, yeah. And, and, and the banker says, my banker says, you know, the maximum sustainable growth rate for a distribution company is between 20 and 25%. And you're right. I was right there at 23%. He goes, you want to make sure you don't grow too fast, Kevin. And I said, I want to make sure I find a new banker, <laughs> but he was right. Uh, I, and my Vistage members helped me control my growth. There were times when we had to pull in the reins and, and slow down a little bit because we were just on fire. We were just, it was great. It was a great ride. It was a roller coaster ride. I like to say it was a white knuckle ride, but but it was great. Uh, there's so many, and I think there's so many things to pull apart here too, Kevin, because like, you know, when we're doing these, we do these presentations that you and I chatted about where we're talking about financial clarity and how to project out value growth. And you can actually see your cash issues, right? Like, yeah. in like, it's funny because I can tell you and I came to these uh, this knowledge through the school of hard knocks, right? We're like, <laughs> right. I wasn't a finance major, right? But when you all are constantly out of cash, you have a desire to figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> and like, in, in when you're specifically in, in the distribution, because you have to buy things and then sell them and you're the float for so many people that you can be pinched and it's really painful. So that, that, maybe give some insights of like why the banker. And so some of these concepts, why the banker said you have a, you have to have a maximum growth rate and what, what, what was some of the experience and why did you not believe him? And then what, why did you come to believe him? So first of all, I was in a big hurry to grow. We were just really doing great in terms of getting into new hospitals and introducing our product lines and what we, what we had to offer. Um, We were addressing three of the top five major concerns in hospitals and um, our product lines solved three of their three of their five biggest problems. So, and and I had some methods on how to get into hospitals that are very resistant to talk to new salespeople. Right, <laughs> that, that's a whole other story. I, I have a whole that. training program around that um, that I've delivered. But my to answer your question, I was in a big hurry to grow, and yeah, cash flow was getting tight. And the banker just explained to me maximum sustainable growth rate and. You're just going to outstrip your cash flow. And many companies actually go out of business, not because they're not growing, but because they grow too fast and they run out of capital. And, um, and I was a little doubtful, but I, I thought it made sense. And I took it to my Vistage mates at the time that I was in Vistage. And they all, they all said, actually, he's right. Uh, you, you need to have a strategic plan for strategic growth and make sure you control your growth in ways that will prevent you from running out of capital, uh, you know, prevent you from having to borrow too much to keep, to be the float. Right. And, um, cause you're paying interest on the, on the float that just eats right into your profit margin. And so you've got to be more careful. How about this, Kevin? 
when because we were a distributor to my dad we, you know he started by buying lots of equipment from canon and panasonic and in, in the 90s and selling it and one though us post office was one of the big first ones so like zero one million five million seven million and and like like we're like where is this cash going to come from we started factoring yeah we're selling our receivables and we didn't get off it for like i mean you're because like you're just always behind yeah. the eight ball and it's just like it was so crazy so for the listeners we were selling our receivables for a line of credit so because no bank looked at us and said hey you guys are fine because they're like oh, we don't know what kind of line of credit you're going to need and so we didn't have any of the advice that you're discussing right now yeah factoring's like being the hamster on a wheel it's really hard to get off <laughs> yeah a closed wheel right it's like one of those actual balls that the hamster's in <laughs> yeah like what was going through your head when you're going okay now i have to look at my business differently about this growth rate so like you may give us an idea like what was the market opportunity did you have an end goal for the business and kind of where you know, when you say strategic plan for strategic growth what does that mean to you and what it what went into that um i think i started with the end in mind right i thought okay 23 percent a year growth rate that was our average i I'd love to grow 20% a year. That's a safe, you know, up upper end growth rate. How do we achieve that? And I would work backwards from there. How many new accounts do we have to open up? What's the average revenue per account need to be? Um, how many people did I need to hire? Because when I, I started, there was only a couple of us. There's three of us, really. And um, by the time I sold my company, we had 60 employees. I had three offices. I had a fleet of trucks. So it was really about... <laughs> knowing where I wanted to go and, and coming up with a plan on how to get there. And, and one of the things I did do was I had a cash flow projection chart that I created myself. So I knew what the checkbook balance would be at the end of every, we would write checks every Friday. And, I, and so I had a 52 column spreadsheet with all of our anticipated expenses line by line. And after we would write the checks, I, at the bottom, it would be a cumulative bank check, a check bank, check account bank balance to tell me how are we going up or are we going down, right? <laughs> and and uh, I would take 15 minutes every Monday morning and I would and I would uh, review every bill that came in. I'd write the, the, the pay date, which would be either four or six weeks out, depending on what they gave me. And I would put it in a file folder and those would get paid, right? And so for me, I monitored that in a way that when my P&L statement came out at the end of the quarter, I already knew what it was going to say well in advance. So I didn't, so many business owners that I've met over the years, they don't know if they're making money or not until they see their P&L statement, right? <laughs> I, you are like my, my partner, my business partner is listening and is probably just like on, on uh, cloud nine right now because, you know, this is, these are the presentations that we're kind of preaching now, Kevin. And it's so crazy because again, I came at this kind of the same way you did, which is through operations and running a business. And then all of a sudden you realize how freaking important this stuff is <laughs> when you don't have any cash, you have to concern to consider these things. Yeah. And you're right. Like, like we call it the bank balance accounting they wake up, look at the bank and they say, hey, how much is in there? Should we cut or should we uh, invest? And then they just keep going. And it's like, you just don't really understand how efficient your company is using cash, which is the biggest indication of how much the thing's worth. Yes. And there's no context for business owners to say, hey, do you even understand what this thing's worth? We, we, we call it solving for annual income, Kevin, versus mm -hmm. looking at the long-term value. So when you are going through this, like there's something that I'm, 
I want to pull apart is you said I needed to figure out where I wanted to go and how I was going to get there. What process did you go through to figure that out? Because so many people, I realize they don't, they, they kind of get this loose vision. And so that path becomes very loose. And so it's kind of this perpetual dream, but no progress towards that dream. <laughs> well, because of the nature of the business we were in, there, there was 101 hospitals in Western Pennsylvania and 75 in, in West Virginia. So I had 176 hospitals total as market opportunity. And, and we were going to get into nursing homes later, but we really, I didn't want to do that at first. I didn't want to dilute our sales efforts. So I wanted to get, I wanted to maximize or capitalize on the hospital market opportunity before we expanded into nursing homes. And so that was a, that was a strategic, let's take it one step at a time. So then I looked at all of the hospitals who were affiliated as health systems and which ones are independently owned. And then from there, we knew what percentage of the patient population in any given day would have a need for the products that we provided, right? One of the product, for example, one of the product lines was bariatric equipment for obese patients. Anybody that weighs more than 350 pounds doesn't fit, a regular hospital bed has a weight capacity of 350 pounds. But we knew at the time, National studies said about 4% of the patient population and on any given day was going to not fit in a regular hospital bed. So we knew that we could get, capture 4%. Wound care wasn't much different, right? Hmm. Um, wound care was probably 7% of the patient population. Patients had open wounds that needed to be treated. So um, we figured out, okay, what's the, what's the opportunity if we captured these particular patients? And, um, and, and we were partly a rental company too. We were half of our Oh, cool. Business model was renting equipment and the other half was capital sales, right? So the rental business, we wanted to capture rental contracts. Did you do any leasing too? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did some of that. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So we were a mixed bag, right? Did you ever come, did you ever realize what was more valuable at the end when you sold of that product, uh, of that mix? Was there any value uh, difference as far as like the enterprise value of the company? from rentals versus capital sales versus leases? I would say the rental business was the most valuable because the vast majority of the hospitals, we had signed contracts. Most of them were th for three years and those contracts created value in the rental business. Plus you're renting your, uh, your equipment, but you still maintain ownership of it. Right. Just like running copiers. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> no one's paying you for your stuff while it just sits there. <laughs> yeah. And our, and the largest health system in my geography is UPMC, which is university of Pittsburgh medical center. It's well known around the country. They signed a five-year contract with, with, with me. And uh, they also extended it for another five years. That's a 10 year deal. On stuff that right. you still own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful versus selling at once and making 20, 30% gross profit. Right. 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 Yeah. So it was a great, it, it was, a, it was an, an engine, right? It just kept generating more business and we would try to introduce additional products to the same customers. I think probably one of the things that we did really, really well is I call vertical integration, right? Horizontal versus vertical integration. Horizontal integration is adding more customers to your customer base. Vertical integration is selling more products that are needed by the customers you already have. And most of the salespeople in my industry would open a new account, get them to get maybe either rent or buy some equipment, and then you move on to the next hospital to try to open that one up. They didn't always provide or, or spend enough time doing the vertical integration, making sure that every product that you have that they actually could use or need could be um, 
could be taken advantage of. And we did a really good job. Why, why didn't most people do that? I mean, like, I mean, it makes a bunch of sense why you did it. I'm just curious, like, what will, you know, it's so much harder to open up a new account than yeah. go back to someone and have lunch and talk about all the other things that you do. <laughs> right. Well, two reasons. One, if you hired a sales rep who's a natural born hunter, that's yeah. what they tend to do. Yeah. Farmers will take care of their existing customers and generate more business. But incentive plans I've seen from all of the manufacturers that I represented, they didn't incentivize you to sell more to the same customer. They incentivized you for opening new hospitals, new accounts, right? You got a bonus for every new account you opened up, but you didn't get anything other than a pat on the back if you increase the revenue from an existing account. So I think the incentive and the natural born tendency, mm -hmm. the combination, that's, that's my answer to your question. That's yeah. what I believe. Yeah, yeah. So it's super interesting, uh, Smell, though, that uh, the medical device industry used to poach the copier salespeople. So, like, our machine would train people and then they'd go make yep. twice as much money in your industry. <laughs> I hired quite a few of you ex, yeah, ex of copier you guys. <laughs> <laughs> 400 phone calls, 15 appointments, and uh, four closes every year. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Couple questions on like the the market data, and now that because you've been invested so long and you're around a lot of other entrepreneurs, I see a lot of people don't have the market data of even what the opportunity is in their market. Mm -hmm. so like, you know, I don't know if it's because of the industry you're in that a lot of that was published. Like, what have you seen other people do of like trying to actually understand what is the potential opportunity to sell into a market? Like, you know, wouldn't it be nice to know that before you spent a decade of time and money and energy? <laughs> Uh, that's an interesting question because I, I don't think they've taken the time to actually crunch the data. I, I think they just think, well, there's got to be a lot of business out there. If we can just grow our company revenues by 10 or 20% this year, we're doing great. Well, where do you want to end up? Oh, I'd like to grow 10, 15% every year. That 15% a year is, is not a bad goal, right? Because in five years, you double your revenues. Um, that's a very comfortable uh, growth, in my opinion. I started the other way, right? I started with what's the market opportunity? What are the percentage of patients in the US? We're going to get every one of them? No, I know that. I'm not that crazy, right? We had a few competitors. I think we had five, or there was five of us total in my market space. We just had to do a better job than them to get some of the business. And oftentimes, hospitals, if we weren't the sole provider of what we provided, we were a dual source. Us and maybe one of our other competitors, we would share the business. Oh, cool. And I was okay with that because I saw it as I'm not here to compete. I'll compliment. I'll take over where they leave off. And if you really like working with us, you may give me their business at some point in the future. And that worked out well. They will they will trip up at some point if you keep doing it. They did. That. Yeah. <laughs> That's called flanking the enemy, by the way. As in terms of marketing, uh, there's marketing warfare. There's a great book called Marketing Warfare Ooh, by Jack cool. Trout. One of the one of the books I read in my life that changed my whole it was an epiphany. It changed my whole perspective on sales. Everybody thinks you're either playing offense or you're playing defense, right? Well, there's actually four strat strategies, not just those two. So you got offense, defense, flanking the enemy, and guerrilla tactics. And that book, Marketing Warfare, gives you some examples, well-known companies that fit into those categories. But here's the bottom line: Interesting. if if you're number one in the marketplace, you're always playing defense because people are trying to take your business. If you're number two in your market space, you're always playing offense because you're going after number one. But if you're not number one or number two, you have no business applying those strategies. You've got to default to either flanking the enemy or guerrilla tactics. And I never worked for the number one or two company. I always worked for the number three company in my uh, early career. 
And so I used flanking maneuvers and it worked like incredibly well. Super interesting. And, you know, and I'd love to hear a couple more examples of that is like, because perfect example of why you shouldn't go after the big boys because we were like number four in our marketplace mm -hmm. and guess what number two and number one do race to the bottom they have like cash with order discounts and then you are sitting there losing your freaking ass yes <laughs> and everybody but it, and there was the the notorious ego play of trying to get the sports team so the minnesota wild was a client of ours and there was like oh you do the minnesota like we don't make any money off of it so like who cares <laughs> right. we won it which is the worst thing that could have happened to us <laughs> not necessarily the minnesota wild but just like the big it's the big logos that everybody chases that, right um, anyways so what define maybe more of like the flanking and the, the guerrilla tactics that's super interesting context i've never heard oh okay so some examples in a book would be uh the cola wars right Pepsi and Coca-Cola, number one and number two. Well, the flanking maneuver was seven up. It came out as the uncola, right? The cola nut. You remember the Jamaican commercial, yeah, the guy with the Jamaica from Jamaica and the commercials? Chris Creer refresh, uh, refreshing, right? Well, it captured the number th three spot. It just grew phenomenally because it was not competing with number one or number two. Another example is the Burger Wars, right? You have McDonald's and you have Burger King. Whoever was number one was playing defense. Whoever was number two was playing offense. Mm -hmm. Well, the successful third players, Wendy's, right? Flanking maneuver. They weren't catering to the children. They were catering to the parents, adults who wanted fast food, good tasting, and comfortable seating. If you ever sit in a McDonald's store, they intentionally or purposely make the seats uncomfortable so you don't hang around. <laughs> Wendy said, we're going to give you comfortable seating. Um, just little nuances like that. Yeah. And Wendy's just exploded because of that flanking maneuver. A, um, a um, gorilla tactic example is um, White Castle, regional player. They're located in lower rent districts. Mm -hmm. They're open all night and they have the sliders, right? No, way different. And so they're not a national player. They're, they're regional. But the profit per White Castle store was larger than the profit made by McDonald's, individual McDonald's stores. So think about that. That was guerrilla tactics, mm -hmm. right? They're catering to a different market space. When the people came out of the bars late at night, they could go get their sliders at White Castle. <laughs> I, that, I, I may or may not have ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot admit, right? Yes, I yes. I, I, or deny. The fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what, what I, I think is super interesting about this part of the conversation, Kevin, is that so I've had a, a couple people on the show recently talking about trends and really understanding this. And then you're also talking about how you're going to then once you understand the market opportunity, now you're assessing your competitors and there's this whole strategic planning. I think it's more of an issue where a lot of business owners are they think that their goals are their strategic plan. Like, <laughs> I want to go from five to 10 million in revenue and from 50 to 100 employees. Sweet. How yeah. the hell are you going to do that? <laughs> Is there an actual plan? How are you going to fund that? And what's it going to be worth at the end? And that you, like you, you'd mentioned it, they just keep talking about the growth. And it's like talking about how you're going to get there, but you've never identified where you're going. And I just see it every day. And so I just find it interesting that how you've shaken out there. Was there someone or something that helped you think this way? from the beginning or was it out of, you know, was it natural or was it out of fear or like, I'm just kind of <laughs> curious. <laughs> well, that's a great question because um, a lot of it, I just learned on, on 
the fly, right? School of Hard Knocks. I learned, I learned how to connect with people in the hospitals. I leveraged the referral method. I, I think I've actually mastered it. And I teach that as part of my sales training is how to, how to leverage the referral method. And the, you know, stepping back to the, to the the strategic perspective, I think there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle, right? Yeah. You might have a goal of how much you want to grow, but like you said, what's the strategy? How do you plan to get there? Well, what's the market opportunity? How, you know, for me, it was, what's the total number of hospitals? We're not going to get every one of them right away. But how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. How do you get market share one hospital at a time? How do you get into the hospital? Well, we had a method. I had a method to do that. How do you vertically integrate the hospital? I had a method to do that, right? And that I learned over time. When I read that book, Marketing Warfare, it totally changed my perspective on how to approach these accounts that were doing business with our number one or number two player in the market space. And um, so my sales approach was different. And I learned that from the book. It was a total paradigm shift in my opinion. And so uh, I leveraged that, right? So all these pieces really came together and allowed us to be successful, but it was very intentional, Mm. right? Not only what's our strategy, but we also have to fit, focus on implementa- implementation of the strategy because implementation of any strategy is, is the weakest link, right? And then you got to throw culture in there. So you got a goal, right? And then you, then you, okay, if you come up with a strategy, great. Now, you've also got to make sure your culture fits that because culture will prevent you from implementing. You got to have an implementation procedure or protocol or how you're going to implement the strategy. You've got to define all that in my opinion. And then once you do that, the roadmap becomes clear, in my opinion. And I think we did that. And I think it's so interesting is um, you said a couple of things that have re- really resonated with me is that you, once you, I mean, you, it's the, it's hard work to literally lay that out, you know, the vision, but then it's even harder work to then lay out the roadmap to get there. And I think the roadmap like you mentioned the numbers is like, how are you going to actually get there? How are you going to fund this? And like, what are the metrics that everybody has to do? If you're hiring hunters, what are they going to bring in? How does that, you know, all those KPIs have to tie together versus kind of just hoping everything falls into place. (laughs) And I don't know if it's like, because, you know, and, and this is my age issue too, that like, I mean, most of my career besides the financial crisis has been a 12 mark or 12 year bull run. You don't have to do a lot of that hard work when everything's screaming up. You're just trying to figure out how to meet demand versus going, what's what's going on with the machine here? And are we actually, right. need, do we need to be intentional? And I don't know if you've seen some of that where now people are starting to think about this, but I think complacency, you know, um, set in a little bit over the last decade. It's interesting because um, I think you have to be intentional, very, very intentional about all the things we talked about. Have I seen that in other companies? No. I do remember I had one competitor that, some venture capital guys came in, they rolled up a couple of little companies and they, they created this new competitor. I won't name them. <laughs> I don't even know if they exist anymore because these guys came in and said, Oh, we're going to take over the, the market space here. There's, and you know, we're going to grow this thing 300% in the next two years. And, and when I heard that, I said, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> watching, watching yeah. how, how are you going to do that? Well, we're just going to take, we're just going to offer lower prices <laughs> and we're going to steal all the market share away from our four other, five other competitors, including you. 
oh yeah, good luck with that. And then they're going <laughs> to sell this huge money losing machine to some other private equity firm. <laughs> it's it's I mean, pretty much what they tried to do. Yeah, they had they several CEOs came and went. They lost a ton of money. And the, and the interesting thing is, is hospitals do buy based on value. They're always talking about lowest price wins, but that's not really true. It's about the value that you deliver for the, for, for the dollar that you charge, right? And so only 7% of buyers buy based on lowest price, 93% buy based on value. Interesting. And um, I, think, I think they learned a hard lesson because I don't think they're in business anymore. Super interesting. I like that stat. Um, and because, yeah, as a salesperson, I remember for my first sales, what's your price? And then you just, you're all freaked out. So then you just <laughs> lower your price. You go home, you make nothing, even though you spend, you know, a week on the deal. But the, oh, it's uh, a trap. That's a trap. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. But what's super interesting and kind of tying a couple of the concepts together is that, you know, between the market opportunity, the, you know, the tight, uh, like the flanking of the gorilla, depending on where you're at. And then, if you have understanding other players, but I've what I'm tying this together from this, uh, I got a, a client where in their they're a manufacturer of um, home goods, and the, a lot of their competitors are now owned by PE firms that are doing what you just said. <laughs> and if they stick through this, they're gonna, all these other people are going to crash and burn because it's not sustainable what they're doing. So right. like you could you could literally outflank someone that's just doing a financial play trying to do what you said. It's um, I'm seeing it a lot in different industries where like someone that's founder led that's intentional has the ability to pick up some scraps as these people <laughs> drop the ball. Yeah. Um, if you win the business on price on low price, you can lose the business on lower price. You know, you just, you're vulnerable to somebody coming in for a dollar cheaper. Um, you have to really win on value and value can be defined as a lot of different things, right? Everybody has different set of values. Service was important. Patient outcomes was important in my industry. Right. So, it, it's it's not it's not a sustainable like you said it's not a sustainable long term strategy to sell just on lowest price. Where did you because it, you were so intentional along the way? Like when did you start understanding what the company was worth? Because I see this as a big challenge with business owners where they don't understand what the assets worth. You know they look at a lot of, from the job the salary distribution and perks versus hey this thing's got a cash flow machine, there's a multiple, there's, you know, a value to someone else. There's a lot of different ways to harvest this value. Where did your mind, the paradigm shift start to go towards you understanding that and what led you towards uh, the eventual sale? Well, I own my company. That's a great question. I, I owned my company for 16 years and, I, and about five years before I sold it, the, one of the primary manufacturers that we were representing was they were getting ready to roll up all their independent distributors because they wanted to go direct. And, and I knew that was going to come because that's what happens in my industry. I saw it so many times in the past and I knew it eventually would happen. And uh, I didn't get a, I wasn't part of that initial roll up, which was they were just bringing in these distributors and giving them stock in a new company. They, they rolled up a couple of their distributors. I wasn't ready yet, but, but it opened my eyes to, okay, how do I generate the value in a company, right? I got to pay down the debt. I've got to make sure that um, the profit margins, how do I uh, increase the profit margins? What are they looked at? And I had a CPA I'd been working with for many years. It was very helpful in that regard. I also went to my Vistage members. I had some accounting people and an attorney in the group. And, um, and we, we processed this issue, right? Hey, look, 
these people are going to probably buy my company. And, and I'm okay with that. It's a strategic buy, right? I'm not looking to sell this to anybody else, but it would make sense because for me, it was the, it was the only company that made sense for me to align with long-term and, and keep my company growing. And, and so it's not like it was my baby, right? It was like, I, I, I started it with the intent to sell it somewhere down the road. Right. Where did that come from? And the reason I, cause you said that super nonchalantly that it wasn't my baby. I started this to sell it, but like using your stats of only seven people buy on price, you're in the only seven people think like that. (laughs) Most of the 93%. I'm just making that up. But like the majority of the people, it's my baby, their ego and identity is tied up into it and they don't understand value. So they're just considered, you know, they're just goal marching constantly. So like, where did that come from? Um, I think it came from the very first company I worked for, the one that hired me on the loading dock with that very short interview. <laughs> if you want the job, it's yours. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, so that company was relatively small when I joined it, and we built it up, and then we got acquired. So the owner of that distribution company sold to a larger entity, actually one of the manufacturers that we were distributing for, and I saw how that whole thing transpired. I actually watched it, right? And so I stayed on after the sale. We grew, the entire entity grew to $124 million a year company. And, um, and then there were some additional you know, buyers that wanted to buy it. And the CEOs at the time didn't want to sell it. But then we ended up in a price war with the, two, the other two national players, and so we went from 124 million a year in revenue to 24 million a year in revenue four years later. Ooh. And I and I left, I think it was six months before they declared chapter 11. And, and so that was an incredible ride. I got to watch it, right? Without owning it and having all the Without, Yeah. And, and, and the guy that owned the distribu- distribution company that originally hired me, you know, he became my mentor, right? And so he was very candid with what was going on behind the scenes as this whole process played out. So I was familiar with what this looks like. And so when it came time for me, I started my own company just like he did, right? Mm -hmm. I I built it up just like he did. I have a strategic buyer that's a manufacturer that we represent wants to acquire us just like he did. And so I look back on what I learned in that first go round, say, okay, now I'm doing what he had done. And so that, that awareness, I think, is unique. I, I, if I hadn't gone through that, I probably would have been a lot less understanding and, and maybe even a lot less intentional mm-hmm. about getting to where I wanted to get to, which was to sell the company. So appreciate that. It's super helpful with the context. I think the mindset is one of the most important parts because you know you hear you watch people's actions. You go like, well, the mindset is sometimes the hardest to explain. Like, was that on purpose or not on purpose? And like, was it luck or was it, in, you know, cause a lot of this stuff is super hard work yeah. when you're trying on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, like when you, when you're thinking about sound, so this roll ups happening, did you understand, like, cause I, did you understand all the different types of exit options, like ESOPs, private equity, third party sales, strategic buyers, like, the whole slew of them, or did you just say that one makes the most amount of sense for me or the only one that you understood? I'm just kind of curious in your understanding of all the different options. No, I I did have an understanding of all the different ways. Well, maybe not all the ways, but many of the ways in which you can sell a business. I probably know a few more now than I did then because I have a lot more, a, a lot better understanding of what exit planning is all about and value building is all about. 
I wish I knew then what I know now. <laughs> but to answer your question, I did understand a lot of the different ways in which I could exit the business. And I didn't really care to be part of a roll-up where I was just getting stock in exchange for giving them my company. So we waited. It was another five years. And while I, while I was waiting for that five years, I was intentionally trying to build value in the company in whatever ways that I understood how to do that at the time. What were some of the ways? Uh, well, just, all right, how to maximize profit, profitability, how to um, pay down debt, right? I, I, I intentionally started paying down that line of credit instead of keeping it rolling forward. Intentionally tried to start paying it down. I invested in technology because technology is less expensive than employees. And so we uh, instituted some asset tracking. We instituted some other technology things that made sense. I would invest in that because I knew there was no return on investment. I didn't see it as an expense. I saw it as an investment for long-term benefit of the the business. And having that structure in place helped a lot as well. And just just followed some of the directions from my Vistage members. Mm -hmm. Said, here's some things for you to think about. Oh yeah, I got to do that. I got to do that. So I learned along the way. Um, and what I did sell was an earnout. So I got a down payment, which was great. And, uh, and then I had a five-year earnout. So then it was based solely on top line revenue. Uh, so my earnout checks, I would get an earnout check every month. And if our revenues went up, my earnout check went up. Revenues went down, my earnout check went down. But we were growing, so I was happy to. Mm-hmm. I was happy with the earnout. It wasn't based on profitability. It was based solely on top line revenue. I didn't have a lot of control over the expenses at that, at that time. The, the new buyer did. And so my goal was to continue to grow the business. It was a five-year employment agreement, five-year and I check. That was a long time. That was probably the one thing. Did you that, last the whole way? It was hard. <laughs> Good for you, though. I'll tell real. you what. I lasted 60 days. It wasn't an earnout, but it was... A, I mean, I, I haven't... I don't think there's a lot of people on the show that have actually fulfilled a complete earnout, especially at a five-year uh, clip like that. What what percentage was earnout compared to the, the cash up front rough ranges? I mean, I don't... About to, I think I got like 20% down. Did you take it? Did you take uh, the company to market using a broker, investment banker, or was it just attorney well, combo or... I, somebody recommended a broker. And so I talked to a broker one time and he said, well, who's their competition? We want to package you and, and, and get competitive bids. I said, no, that's not the, that's not, that's not going to fit with what my overall goal is. I simply want to be able to negotiate the best deal possible for the, for the buyer and for me. And so I just, I had an attorney in my, my group, Dan Lynch from the Lynch law group and my Vistage group. And and Dan was intimately familiar with my business because he came to the Visage meetings every month, right? right? Um, so he negotiated the sale for me and actually got me extra money in the 11th hour. I was very, very happy with Dan's negotiating style. But, but it, was, it was a strategic buy. We were going to add value to that overall corporation by bringing in my people, my technology, my, my leadership style, um, the fact that we were growing, and just be, I was their number one fastest growing independent distributor. So I was number one on their hit list. I just didn't get part of the roll up. I ended up selling later when they, um, when they started, you know, buying the remaining distributors that so they were wanted they, to acquire. Were they private equity backed or were they just, uh, no family owned. Oh, super cool. Yeah. Interesting. So 
when you said that, um, you know, you had under like with the other exit options, this just made sense on, you know, what you wanted out of your business, your life. I mean, like, how did you, how did you go through what, what like, what kind of decision-making process did you say, Hey, this fits versus some of the other ones. I'm just kind of curious if there was non-negotiables or things that stuck out. Well, uh, so I do that in an option, right? I, some of the independent distributors didn't want to sell to this, this manufacturer. Well, the manufacturer said, if you don't want to sell, then we're going to go direct and open up our own office in your city and you'll lose the product line. And they did that, right? Well, this particular manufacturer at the time was probably 48% of my income, 48 oh, yeah. to 50% of my revenue. And so I had a decision like, well, I actually wanted to sell to these people because I actually really liked working with them. I thought they had great people, great leadership, very, very, um, just, it was a great family run business when they were smaller. And, uh, you know, they, I think by the time they acquired my company, they were already a $350 million a year company because they wow. manufactured and they, ro- and they were rolling up all the distributors or the ones that they wanted don't, or cutting off the ones that didn't, didn't want to join. So I, I was faced with, well, either I join this, you know, and stay on for five years and I get my money and right. And I can retire after my five-year employment agreement, or I could say no which case I would lose their product line, which was half of my revenue. And I, I would have shrunk my company, but I could still, I had other product lines. I had, by that, by that time I was, I think they were one of eight or nine product lines that I had, you know, so the other eight or nine product lines made up the other 50% of my revenue. I could have stuck just with them, Sounds but I didn't stressful. really want to do that because I <laughs> was getting, you know, yeah, I was like, well, so here's the deal. I sold it. In 2011, five-year employment agreement ended in 2016, and I got to retire at age 59. If I hadn't sold it, I'd still be there running a, a company that I would have had to replace the revenue from 50% of the revenue that I had lost. So my company would have shrunk to half, and I would have had to rebuild it. Interesting. That wasn't my plan. <laughs> well, it's so interesting. How similar is that story from that first company when you're on that loading dock? I mean, like yeah. <laughs> you just, you, you've already saw that movie play out and it wasn't a good yeah. ending. <laughs> um, so I, I know we're running a little bit short on time here. We'll wrap up in the next five, 10 minutes is you had mentioned that now, so it's been a while, like you wish you, there's things still, even though you were this intentional and you went through and you took the time and learning and in the Vistage groups, you did a lot of things, right? You still said, there are things I wish I would have known. Anything that come to mind, that whether you're through the education or the Visage stuff or the things that you're doing now that you're like, oh, that would have been interesting in the decision-making process. Oh, I think that um, as well as my company was able to do, we probably could have done even better had I paid attention to understanding how to build culture, right? There's some several Visage speakers on culture. There's the eight-step process to creating the culture that you want, how to drive it to the organization, how to sustain it long-term. I wish I would have known about that. Okay, I think we had a decent culture, a pretty good culture, but you can always do better. And I think um, knowing more of the intentional culture part, culture is so important, so important. The other thing I would say is um, EOS. I wish I would have known about EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. Kudos to Gina Wickman. I have one of the EOS implementers in my one of my Vistage groups right now. And those guys are great. And I love the process. I'm I'm completely sold on it. I wish I would have known about that. And then the third thing is there are now some resources out there to help business owners understand how to build value. 
So there is actually a value builders assessment. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah, Warlow's been on the show a couple of times. I got certified back in like 2016. Yeah, so I found that extremely valuable. Exit planning, there's a company called Navix out of Atlanta. One of my former Vistage mates and good friends is a Navix exit planner here in Pittsburgh. They have a scorecard, which he came and presented to my group, one of my Vistage groups, a small business group. And and I have probably three or four members in there that want to sell within the next two to five years. And he went through the scorecard and explained it, and I was blown away. And and this guy that's a Navix exit planner, my friend, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's already started four, four businesses and sold them off from scratch in industries he had no experience in. You know, he built, he started eight, eight, eight years later, he got bored and sold it, started <laughs> another one, right? And, and he and I both, when we look at the scorecard that Navix has, and we said, oh my gosh, we both wish we would have seen the scorecard at the time we were selling our businesses because it just, it pulls back the curtains, it opens your eyes, it's, it's oh my gosh, it's more than just, what is the revenue and need to be? What is your emotional state of mind when you retire? What are you going to do? Which that was a problem for me during my five-year employment agreement was what the heck am I going to do when I retire at 59? And so I had a lot of discussion about that. But those are the things. I oh, think those are the that, three things. That's Go ahead. Super, super helpful, Kevin, because the this t- um, all very helpful. And then the title of this podcast five years ago used to be called Life After Business. <laughs> yeah, right. When when you've gone through the the process, you understand why that that was called that. It didn't resonate with a lot, and the, it, the message has evolved over the years. But the thing that you said was really interesting is that it's understanding this value, and it's it's like it's like the shift in mindset of once you you, you mentioned revenue and employee and all these metrics that I mean, I like a, you know a decade ago, I'd be sitting in Vistage, and everybody's talking about revenue and employees and locations. And I'm like, well. How many partners do you have? How much debt do you have? What's this thing worth? Yeah. <laughs> way different question, right? Oh, yeah. And I know if I asked that question to my group, half of them wouldn't be able to answer it. <laughs> so then it's like, well, it's so interesting because like you think about, you know, what moves the needle the most and is it, it's truly the understanding of what creates value. So you're spending time on the right things. You know, I, yes. is there any, if you were to go back and, um, well, I'm trying to think as we're wrapping up here. If you were to go back and talk to yourself as you were starting the business, is there any, you know, one word of advice that you'd give yourself? Like, what would you tell yourself to help the the journey on round two a little bit easier? <laughs> Gosh, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I could give you one word. I would, if I was to go back and talk to myself at the time I started the company, it would be something along the lines of understand how to control your growth and how to build value and know where you want to end up in five, 10, 15 years. Because I think it takes about 15 years for most businesses that start from scratch to really hit that plateau. So let me put it this way. What I've learned is about starting a business from scratch and building it up, it's, it's much like driving a manual transmission car, right? When you're in startup mode, you're in first gear. You're just trying to get some momentum, right? You as the owner, you're out there making the sales. It's all about bringing in cash, right? You wear all the hats. At some point, you have to push in the clutch, shift into second gear, which is you start to hire some people, maybe an office admin or a billing assistant, right? Um, you might ha- start to hire a couple of salespeople. Again, you're, you're, you're gaining speed, right? You're starting to scale. Then in third gear, you've got to push in the clutch and move to third gear because now you're big enough that you need some managers, right? Some supervisors, because in second gear, everybody reports to you. 
as the owner, right? <laughs> Third gear, you start to put some people in place to manage some of the departments, right? My company grew and they did this. And I know a lot of other businesses don't typically don't do this. They just, the, the CEO wants to everybody to report to them. And then next thing you know, you got 30 people reporting to you. You can't manage that. So I knew I was best suited for sales. That's my background. That's where I expertise. So I brought in a VP of operations and I brought, a, I brought in a VP of um, finance, admin, and I let them run with those departments. And best thing I did, right? And, and, I, and I don't necessarily know that I could actually afford to hire them at the time I did. Mm-hmm. I just knew that if they took that off my plate, I could dedicate more time to my sales team and, and, mm-hmm. and selling to the important customers and we would drive our revenue up. And it worked. Yeah. It worked, right? And then, so you've got, now you've got some professional managers you bring in from outside and you're in third gear, and then you just build up the momentum. Then you push in the clutch and you shift into fourth gear, which is overdrive. Sort of like the flywheel concept that Jim Collins talks about, yeah, good sure. to great. Yep. That's the flywheel. And going through those phases, the trick is understanding what those phases entail. But even more importantly is knowing when to push in the clutch. Because if you yeah. don't push it in soon enough, you're going to burn up the engine. The tachometer goes in the red zone, and you're the guy that's going to get burnt out. That's if awesome. you push it in too early, you're going to stall the engine. So you got to know when to push in the clutch to take your company to the next phase, the second gear, and then the third gear, and then the fourth gear. And to me, that's probably the best advice I could give myself at the time because I didn't know that then. What tools, if you were to name one or two or concepts, help you identify when you should push in that clutch? <laughs> Stress, lack of sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah your, your spouse and your family going, um, uh, live here. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was a workaholic at the beginning. I was working, you know, Monday through Friday and on the weekends because hospitals are open 24-7. They expected us to be open 24-7 as well. Mm-hmm. And um, we I couldn't let our service reputation go down. So I had to maintain that. And that meant I had to go out and do a lot of the work on the weekends myself. And so, and my Vistage group pulled me out of that vortex of work-life balance. They say, if you own your own business, you get to work your own hours. Yeah. You get to work all of your own hours. And and if you let that happen. So, you know, waking up at three o'clock in the morning, worrying about how you're going to make payroll, (laughs) just stupid stuff like that. Right. And I realized that I needed to depend more on my people. You've got to delegate to elevate. And so bringing in some professional managers, delegating, not being the one to make decisions, empowering people to make good decisions, right? Um, I learned all those things. And my life got easier and easier the more I did that. So there's so many different things that go into that answering the question you asked no, me. But it's uh, it's <laughs> helpful. I mean, there's all those factors go into the stress point of you're topping out in this gear, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One comment and then we can wrap up uh, is uh, Daniel Marcos, who's the co-founder of the Growth Institute, you know, Scaling Up and the Burn Hardish. He was just on the show. It has it actually just went out this morning. His new book is on the four stages of a business, Kevin, and it's one through four. And he literally says the perfect blend of revenue or of profit and drama is at 12 employees. And that's after like stage one or two. And then you might as well scale the stage four, which is 60 plus employees where the profit and drama actually come back. So you literally just articulated <laughs> his entire book in like the last like three minutes. So obviously you guys are both onto something. <laughs> 
Wow. I, so he copied my concept, eh? Yeah. <laughs> he must have been like listening somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if I'll get a, a piece royalty, of ro right? Royalty, right? I, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, so two final <laughs> questions. Uh, what does the word intentional mean to you? Um, going after something uh, intentionally means knowing exactly what you want, exactly how you're going to get there, and don't get distracted with the shiny object syndrome, right? And that was, I mean, I lived through that. We, we took on some product lines and we had no business being involved with. We were selling replacement casters <laughs> from a caster company for hospital beds. We had no business doing that. And, and you know, you, you get all these opportunities come your way in business. And, and, you know, I was at the beginning, I was saying yes to every company wanted me to distribute for them, which is what got us out of hand. Then be much more selective. It's like I had to put blinders on. Once I once we decided we were going to be in the patient safety niche, any product that didn't fit in that category, I ignored. I said, no thanks. You got to find somebody else to distribute for you. Even though the profit margins might be huge, mm -hmm. it's not a good fit for us. Mm -hmm. Don't get distracted by opportunities that sound like, oh, that could be great, but it's not part of what we are really good at, right? Mm -hmm. It's not part of where our core focus is that our customers depend on us for. And so that's a long answer to your short no, question. It's beautiful because I think you can't have enough of that because it's so hard to say no. So especially with the personalities that end up being entrepreneurs. <laughs> um, last question is where do we, where do the listeners find you more information uh, if they want to reach out? So my uh, email address is kevin.trout, T-R-O-U-T, like the fish, at vistagechair.com. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's where I found you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you reaching out to me. That was very, very nice and very kind of you. Been a blast, Kevin. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, thanks for all the great questions. I hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for tuning in. I have just one big takeaway and that is understanding your numbers can help you understand what is your optimal growth rate. I've interviewed way too many people that have told their story on this show and said, we grew too fast. There's one in particular, his name is Xavier Helgeson. He talked about scaling his company up so fast that it, he was hitting a 40% compounded annual growth rate and he had to sell to private equity because he ran out of cash. He actually ran the numbers and if he would have grown at 24%, he would have been able to make a bunch of money and have a lot of cash and have a lot of options. So it's really interesting that his growth rate was right in that range that the banker told Kevin that he should hit in order to self-fund his growth and not be put into a position where he had to sell in order to to get the cash that you needed for the business. There's an entire section in the intentional growth training about the financials and how to project out all three financial statements. By projecting out the income statement, your balance sheet, and your cash flow statement for years, you can actually integrate the multiple, the valuation, and your net proceeds so you can see the visibility into how you're going to use your cash, how you're going to tap into your line of credit, and then how your EBITDA is going to shake out and what the value of your business is if you've built the financials like this. It's amazing. If you want to know more and tap into that knowledge, go check out the Intentional Growth Training at Arcona.io. Otherwise, I hope to see you next week and thanks for tuning in.